Well, good morning. Uh, welcome to Christ the King. Uh, my name is Penny, and I'm the pastor here. And uh, if I haven't had the opportunity to meet you or uh, to greet you, I would love to do so uh, after the service sometime. Uh, if you have time to stick around, I'd love to formally welcome you because we are glad that you are here. And, and if you are a first-time visitor or guest, uh, we, we recognize, we know that uh, showing up to a church where you don't know anyone and maybe no one knows you can be a little bit daunting. It can maybe create a little bit of anxiety, a little bit of worry, a little bit of fear, like, am I going to say the right things? Where am I supposed to sit? You know, all those sorts of things. But, but I want you to know that whether this is your first time being here or your 101st, we are glad that you are here. You are welcome in this place um, because this is a place where we come and we uh, open God's word and we sing praises to him. And that's not just for those who have been members from the very beginning. That's for all those who would come and hear God's word. And so, so welcome. We're glad that you're with us. And this morning, we're going to be looking at a passage in the book of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 21. And so if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn to 1 Samuel 21. 1 Samuel's an Old Testament book. It's a narrative. It's kind of right in the middle of the, the Old Testament. If you're flipping through, well, that's actually not true. It's kind of more, not that I lied, but misspoke for a second. Uh, it's, uh, it's on the more front end, of front half of the Old Testament. So I'd encourage you to turn there, or you can uh, follow along on the screens in front of you in a moment. The passage will be there. But the reason why we're jumping in at 1 Samuel chapter 21 is because we're resuming a series that we began many, many months ago. So before COVID hit, way back in the, the winter and the spring, we started a series in 1 Samuel, and we're working our way through and took a break during the summer to go to the Psalms. But we want to re return to 1 Samuel because maybe some of you have been wondering what happens Right? Maybe you've read ahead and you're wondering, what's Penny going to say about the Witch of Endor? <laughs> You'll have to stick around for that one. Um, that's coming. But, um, but we want to jump back in, and we're jumping in where we left off in 1 Samuel 21. But in order for us to uh, remind ourselves where we've been, it's good for us to take a little bit of review uh, so that we understand where we are in the story. And if you remember, 1 Samuel is the story of the coming of the king. That's why it's given to us. It recounts for us the, the rising up of a king in Israel. And you remember, Israel has external threats that are pushing in against them. There are warring nations that are seeking to bring destruction upon them, that are seeking to enslave the people of God. They have these external threats, but there are also internal threats as well. Because there are people, there are leaders within Israel that are completely immoral. You remember Eli and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, they were supposed to lead the people into worship, but they were completely immoral. And so they lead the people not towards the Lord, not into greater holiness and righteousness, but away from the Lord. And so there's these external threats. There's also internal threats. And in response to these threats, the people of God, they rise up with one voice and they say, we need a king. We need a king like all the other nations. And so what does God do? He gave them a king. Saul. And for a little while, Saul looked pretty good, didn't he? I mean, he, he looked the part. He was tall and handsome. He was strong. He also played the part. He led the people into victory. He went to war on their behalf, and he was victorious in battle. And so for a while, he, he looked the part, and he played the part. But we also know that Saul wasn't a great king. 
he turned. And he turned the people away from the Lord, and he rejected God. And because of that, God rejected him. And so in response now, God anoints David, right? Through the prophet Samuel, he anoints David to be the next king. And even though David hasn't come to power, David's been faithful, right? He slays the giant Goliath. He leads the army into victory. He calms Saul's troubled spirit, and everyone loves David, right? They love David. They sing a song about him. David, Saul has slain his thousands, but David his ten thousands, right? Everybody loves David, even Saul, for a little while. Because after a little while, Saul becomes very jealous of David, right? And Saul doesn't like David anymore because Saul wants songs sung about him, right? Saul wants to be the one who is exalted and lifted up in the eyes and the voices of the people. And so he becomes jealous of David and he tries to put David to death. Six times Saul tries to have David killed. Some of those times was by his own hand, right? Remember, he threw a spear at him and tried to pin him against the wall in his own court. So David's life is threatened. So David goes on the run. It's kind of like that movie from the 90s, The Fugitive. Do you all remember that movie? We just showed our kids this movie for the first time a few weeks ago, The Fugitive with Harrison Ford, right? This story about this, this successful doctor, this man who was loved by his wife, he was respected by his coworkers, he was a man of great character and hard work, and everyone loved him. Everyone appreciated him. But he's falsely accused, and he's jailed for the murder of his wife. And you remember, through a series of amazing events, Harrison Ford, he breaks out of custody, and he spends the remainder of the movie running, running from the authorities and running to try and prove his innocence. And that's what David's doing. He's running. In chapter 21 and through the rest of the book, David is a man on the run. And he's on the run, not for a week, not for a month. Some commentators have speculated that chapters 21 and 22 alone took place over the course of 10 years. So then think about that, like going on chapters beyond that. For over a decade, David was running for his life. David, he's God's man, right? He's the king. He's the one after God's own heart. He has been mighty in battle, and he has sought the good of Saul and the people, and now he is a wanted man. He's on the run. So where does he run to? Let's read chapter 21 of 1 Samuel. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech came to meet David trembling and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have at hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread at hand, but there is holy bread. If the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread, but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day in which it was taken. 
Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg, the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not a excuse me, then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I've brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Allah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that, give it to me. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen, that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we ask now that as we come to it, that you would teach us, that you would show us your grace and mercy, that you would help us so that we would trust you more and more. Lord, we need your help. We need your leading. And so we ask that you would allow the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts to please you. For you are our God and our King, in whose name we pray. Amen. So where does David go? Where does he run? Where would you run? Well, you would go somewhere that would be safe, right? Somewhere where you would find respite, somewhere where you would find safety in the face of danger. That's where you would run, isn't it? Well, that's where David goes. He runs to the city of priests. That's what we're told in verse 1. David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. You see, the city of Nob, we're told in the next chapter, is the city of priests. And so what we're, what we're not told is that at some point along the way, the tabernacle had been moved from wherever it had been to the city of Nob. And so the place of worship became the city of Nob. And because of that, the priest took up residence there. And so David, when he's afraid, when he's on the run, when he's in danger, where does he go? Well, he'll go to the priest because maybe there he can find safety. He can find respite. He can find provision, right? Because that's what he's looking for. You remember at the end of chapter 20, Jonathan, Saul's son, David's best friend, told him that Saul is breathing threats against him. And so David, in haste, he runs, he flees, and he doesn't take bread or, or drink with him. He doesn't take sword or spear with him. And so he shows up at the tabernacle, and what does he ask for? Bread and sword. And that's exactly what the priest gives him, right? He gives him the bread of presence, of the presence. Now, this bread was bread that would have been used in the worship of God. We know from the Levitical law that every Sabbath day, 12 loaves of bread would be put out. And these loaves were big. They weren't like, don't think pita chips, don't think little pieces of cracker. These were loaves that were made with three and a half pounds of flour. And every Sunday they would be put out and the old bread would be taken away and the old bread would be reserved for the priests. This was given to them for their provision. And it was reserved only for the priests. 
But now when David comes and he's in need, what does Ahimelech do? He takes that bread that had been set apart for the priests and he gives it to David. And what's interesting is Jesus actually invokes this passage. Do you remember in the Gospels? Jesus and his disciples are walking on the Sabbath and they're going through a grain field and, and his disciples take the grain and they, they roll it in their hands and they eat it right as they're going along their way. And what do the Pharisees say? Why are you breaking the Sabbath? And what did Jesus say? He said, don't, don't you remember what David did? He ate the bread of the presence. I mean, picking a little bit of grain is no big deal. And what Jesus was doing in invoking this passage is he's telling us that, that mercy is what was occurring here, right? That mercy, that Ahimelech was right in giving David the bread of presence. And so David receives this gift from the priest, but he also receives Goliath's sword, which is interesting. Like, why would you ask the priest for a sword? But regardless, Goliath's sword just happens to be there. And so it seems like David has everything he needs. He's been provided for, bread and sword. But this should cause us to ask a couple questions, two in particular. The first question is, so, so if David has everything he needs, why did he concoct this story? Right? I mean, he, he creates this story, this ruse that he puts before him. Like, why, why tell this story to him? Why, in essence, lie? That's the first question. The second question is, if he's been provided for, why does he keep running? So those are very good questions, and we're going to take those up. And, and actually, the answer to both of them is a single answer, or at least a single theme. So first, the question of why does David concoct the story? Why does he create it? Well, there's a few different ways to try to understand this. Some commentators have said, well, he's not really lying because the king, the king, is really the king, the Lord. So David's going about his way, and he's following the word of the Lord, and so, so it's, it's a double entendre when he says the king. I don't think that's the right way to interpret this. There's nothing in the text that makes us think that. So others have speculated, well, maybe, maybe Ahimelech's not trustworthy. The priest isn't someone that David can trust. And if we know anything about Ahimelech, and we know very little, we know that he comes from a line of priests that is not trustworthy. Because Ahimelech is the brother of Ahijah. And I know you guys remember Ahijah, right, from chapter 14. I'm just kidding. Y'all don't remember Ahijah. He doesn't show up in our uh, scripture memory verses, but, but in chapter 14, Ahijah is a priest who sided with Saul, and Ahijah is the brother of Ahimelech. And so maybe David's thinking, I, I don't know if I can trust this guy. Maybe he's going to run to the king. Maybe he's going to tell that I'm on the run. Also, Ahimelech and Ahijah are the great-grandsons of Eli, which means they're the grandsons of Hophni or Phinehas. And we know what, what they were like, right? Immoral, horrible leaders, right? And so maybe David's thinking, I can't trust this guy. That's not a bad interpretation. But ultimately, I think the reason why David concocts this story and he gives this tale to Ahimelech is because David is protecting him. David's protecting him because David realizes that the threat of Saul extends beyond Saul's own court and is extending even to the city of the priests. That David tells him this story so that Ahimelech can have plausible deniability. 
that when Saul shows up or if he shows up and asks, why did you help my enemy? Why did you help this person I've been trying to, to, uh, to kill, to destroy? Why did you help him? Ahimelech can say, I, I had no idea. And that's exactly what happens in a chapter after this. Saul does come to Ahimelech and say, why did you help my enemy? And Ahimelech says, I thought he was your man. I thought he was one of your generals. I didn't know he was on the run. You see, David is actually seeking to protect Ahimelech because the threat of Saul remains. And that's why David keeps running. Because the threat of Saul even has extended to the city of priests. And we see this in verse 7 with Doeg the Edomite. He was Saul's servant. He was one of Saul's chief herdsmen. And so this is, this is interesting. It, it kind of gets thrown in there in the middle of the chapter like a smoking gun. Do you all know what I'm talking about? Like if you're watching a murder mystery, right? Like PBS murder mysteries, masterpiece mysteries, that's what they're called. You're watching that and in the early uh, parts of the show, right? There's a smoking gun. And you know someone's been shot, someone's been killed, but you don't know who fired it. You don't know who's dead, but you find out later why there was a smoking gun. That's what verse 7 is. It's a smoking gun. David had reason to be nervous about Doeg because in a chapter later, this is a preview for next week, Doeg does tell Saul. He goes and he tells Saul about David. And so David recognizes, he realizes that the threat is real. That this city that he thought was a place of safety is not the place he thought it was. And so David keeps running. And in his desperation, he goes from the city of the priests to the land of his enemies. We're told that in verse 10. David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. So Gath is a city of the Philistines. And when it says he went to the king, it doesn't mean that David showed up at the king's door and like knocked on and said, I'm here for asylum. It's simply meaning he's going into this land that is ruled by Achish. But I want you to think about this for a second. He's going into the city of the Philistines. The Philistines, y'all. David is on like the top 10 most wanted list in the Philistines. Right? He's led Israel against the Philistines time and again. And to make matters worse, he's gone to Gath. And Gath is the city of Goliath. So he's going to the very city of the Philistines, greatest warrior, their greatest champion, the one who killed Goliath, and he shows up with Goliath's sword. How desperate must he be for safety? That he would go there. Surely he's thinking, I can, I can just be incognito, right? Maybe no one will notice me. No one will recognize me. I'll go in. I'll slip in. I'll kind of lay low for a little while until Saul calms down or maybe he dies or whatever, and then, then I'll head home. But his plan doesn't work because he's recognized, right? He's recognized that people see him, and instead of finding relief and safety and hiding, David finds danger. They recognize him and say, the king is here, which isn't completely accurate because he's not the king yet. But they know who he is. He's the one who killed Goliath. And they say, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. This song that Israel sang, rejoicing, has spread throughout all the land. And so David is feared. And because of this, we're told that David fears. Look at verse 12. 
David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. David was afraid. Now, what's interesting about this is that in the entire book of 1 Samuel, this is the only time we're told that David feared his enemies. This is the only time. In fact, in the entire books of 1 and 2 Samuel, the only times we're told that David feared is when he feared the Lord. Saul, he was scared out of his mind of the Philistines. Israel, they trembled at the sight of Goliath. But David, no, never feared. We never hear David was afraid. Not when he stood before Goliath and not when he went to the battle, into battle with the Philistines and not even when Saul was throwing spears at him. We're never told David is afraid until now. Now let's be honest with ourselves. If we're in David's situation, right, if we're in his sandals, we'd be afraid, wouldn't we? A hostile land, a place filled with enemies, you think you're undercover, but your cover's been blown? We would fear, wouldn't we? I mean, fear seizes us at far less, doesn't it? We're afraid what someone might think of us. We're afraid of the unsurety of the future. We're afraid of who's going to get elected in November or who's not going to get elected in November. We're afraid of a lot of things. So what do you do when you fear? Well, I think many of us, we try to control, right? Maybe it's not even the situation, the person we're afraid of or the situation that we're afraid of. Like, we try to control something, right? We try to control our kids. We try to control our spouse. We try to control work. We try to have some semblance of control because maybe that can deal with our fears, right? Or we try to shelter ourselves away. We, we retreat, and, and maybe whatever that we're afraid of, maybe it'll go away. It will disappear over time. Or we reduce the potential of risk. Or sometimes we even go on the attack, we're afraid of someone or something, and so we're going to attack them. We're going to destroy them. We're going to ruin their reputation because then we don't have to be afraid anymore. But what does David do? Well, David acts like a crazy person. <laughs> Did you see that? He acts insane. And, and the king, Akish, he says, y'all, I have enough crazy in my courtroom. Just send this guy away. So maybe... No, that's not what we're supposed to do. <laughs> we have enough crazy in this world. We don't need to act insane. But in order to understand more fully what David does, we actually have to turn to some other place in Scripture. Because you see, 1 Samuel 21, it's just giving us the 20,000-foot view of the story. But if we are going to probe David's heart and his mind and to understand what's really going on with him in this moment, we need to look at one of the Psalms. Because there are two psalms, Psalm 34 and 56 specifically, that talk about this event. In fact, there are many, many psalms that David wrote that were written during the time of his running. But if you would, turn to Psalm 56. And I think we're going to project it. If, if we've got it, we can put it up. There we go. Beautiful. So as we look at Psalm 56, we know that this is written during the season in which David is... Uh, when he's been uh, uh, captured by the Philistines because the title of Psalm 56 tells us that he wrote it when the Philistines seized him in Gath. And when he writes about this situation, what does he say? 
Well, it gives us insight into David's mental and emotional state. He says in verse 1, Man tramples on me all day long, an attacker oppresses me. Verse 2, My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack proudly. Verses 5 and 6, All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife, they lurk, they watch my steps as they have waited for my life. So David's describing the distress. And even in verse 3, he references his fear. And what does he say? When I am afraid. When I am afraid. Where will he turn? Where will he look? He says, when I am afraid, oh God, I put my trust in you. I put my trust in you. David, the anointed future king. David, whose life has been threatened by Saul. David, who has been the great leader and warrior. When in danger, when afraid, what does he say? I put my trust in you. See, this psalm helps us to understand what's going on in David's heart and mind. And what is occurring is that when David is afraid, he realizes he doesn't need to run to the city of the priests, and he doesn't need to run to the land of his enemies where he needs to run is into the care of the Lord. David trusts. So what are you trusting in? Are you trusting in your own ingenuity? Your own influence? Are you trusting in your resolve, your wealth? I mean, think about, like, like when we're afraid, what, what do we do? If you're like me, it's like, man, I'm just not going to fear anymore, right? I'm going to grip my teeth. Right? I'm going to grab hold of it. I'm, I know I'm not supposed to be afraid, so I'm just going to be courageous for goodness sake. Right? Is that what we do? Resolve? Is that what we trust in? Are we trusting in who's going to win the election in November? Or what party is going to have control of the House of Representatives? Is, is that where our trust is? What about our own intelligence? I can just kind of figure this out. Are these the places we trust? Now, look, I, I know most of y'all, and y'all have been coming to church long enough, we, we know that we're not supposed to trust in those things, and we're not supposed to say we trust in those things, right? <laughs> like, who's going to say that? Yep, I'm, I'm trusting in whoever wins the election, right? We know we're not supposed to say that. But what about our actions? Do they say that? Do our words tell us we're trusting in something or someone other than God? What about our social media feeds? <laughs> that might tell us who we're trusting in. David said, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. David trusts in the Lord. He runs to the care of the Lord. And why does he go there? Why does he trust even in his distress? Well, verse 9 of Psalm 56, this I know that God is for me. That God is for me. That is not pious wishing. That is not presuming on God's care. David is assured of God's promises. That even when he is chased by Saul or he is unsure of who he can trust in and he's surrounded by enemies and later he's going to take up residence in a cave, God's promises remain. 
He has not left him. God is for him. And that is why that when David fears, he puts his trust trust in God. And y'all, that's why we do. You see, this theme, God is for me, it shows up in another place in Scripture. It shows up in Romans chapter 8. And there the Apostle Paul writes, If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You see, friends, when it feels like we are on the run, when it feels like fear is overwhelming us, we too trust in God because God is the one who sent his son, David's greater son, the anointed king. Jesus, the one who is rejected by his people. Jesus, who was falsely accused of wrong. Jesus, who fell into the hands of the civil authorities. And he did all of this to give his life for us. You see, friends, in the midst of David running, he learned to trust the Lord. And so too do we. To trust the care of the God who is for us. He's for us not because of ourselves, not because of what we've done, not because we are beautiful or smart or because we we have great influence or wealth or, or whatever it might be, our places of position. He is for us because of Christ, because of what Christ has done. And so, y'all, I don't know what, what, what fear is seizing you this day. It might be one of the many things I mentioned. It might be a a a number of other things that I haven't. And I don't know where you are placing your trust. But y'all, because God gave his son, because his promises are sure, we don't run to all these other places to find trust. We instead run to the Lord. And in doing so, we find his care. So let's do that now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that there is no one else that we can turn to, that there is no one else that can give us what we need. There is no one else that we can rely upon like you. And so we do run to you, finding care and love, finding hope. We run to you, trusting that you are our God, the one who has sent your son, our Lord Jesus, who has lived and died and risen again to make us your own. And so we run to you and ask that you would help us so that we would trust you today and all of our days because, Lord, you are trustworthy. You're the God who loves us and has saved us, the God who cares for us, the God in whom we run to. We pray in Christ's name and God's people said together, amen.